What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love, like those perfect portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. And how emojis now turn every FaceTime with the kids into fun time. <laughs> in fact, the only thing you'll love more than your iPhone XR is getting it included in the price when you get an unlimited plan. That's right. Get both unlimited and iPhone XR included for just 40 bucks a month. Sure, you can get unlimited somewhere else. But for the same price at T-Mobile, you get unlimited and iPhone XR. Join today and get iPhone XR included with your unlimited plan for just 40 bucks a line for four new lines. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE or visit a store today. $30 for essentials plus $10 for iPhone XR with auto pay and qualifying trade-ins via 36 bill credits. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using more than 50 gigs per month. Video at 480p for well-qualified buyers plus taxes and fees. Contact us before canceling or remaining balances due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. Zero down plus $20.84 per month for 36 months. Full price $749.99, 0% APR. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox podcast. As we continue rolling through our season preview packages, we're moving on to the Los Angeles Clippers. And while Andy is not here with me, Dan Valley, we are lucky enough to have Adam Spinella of NBA Math and b-ball breakdown he is also a basketball coach in x's and o's savant and you know he the clippers were one of the teams that when i talked to him he specifically mentioned that he would like to do so i'm very excited to have him on how are you how are you doing today adam oh dan i'm doing great uh Finally ready to, to dive in. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Into, to these Los Angeles Clippers, one of the, the strangest teams after this offseason and heading into next year. It'll be fun to digest. Could they be the strangest team? You had brought this up before the podcast. Now, like, I'm just looking. When you really when you think about their roster, it's just weird. But I'm actually looking at their depth chart right now, and it's just so topsy-turvy. Yeah, I I mean I I'm looking at their depth chart too and I see basically like four point guards that can play and then like four three or four interior guys and then a couple mismatch forwards and zero wings with the exception of maybe DeAndre Liggins but like they are the strangest collection of a uh, fairly talented roster and it's going to be really interesting to see what Doc Rivers and company really make of this. 
I think where we have to start is obviously the Chris Paul trade and the haul they got was fantastic, particularly under the circumstances, just because if he would have left, he still could have just signed with the Rockets for less money. I know it was easier this way and they have his bird rights, so they, they kind of do him a solid too, but to know that he's going to be a free agent and could just leave, um, to get what they did was... Uh, especially with Patrick Beverly, who is still with two years left on that deal, is one of the best contracts in the NBA, probably one of the five to seven best contracts overall. And uh, just to even get Lou Williams, um, Sam Decker, just all these pieces, even Montrez Harrell, who I very much like, it's uh, that was it was it was a very good um, return that they got for him, and I think that is is necessary context when we're talking about their roster because they did just lose a, a top 10 player. Yeah. We look at a lot of these trades for superstars and there have been way more over the last three or four years than I think probably the decade prior to that. But we look at most of them based off of who's the best player that the team got back in return. You know, in the Paul George trade this year, we look at Victor Oladipo going to Indianapolis, uh, Jimmy Butler. We see Zach Levine. I don't know if there is one real, high upside kind of 15 to 20 points per game guy that the Clippers got. But in terms of overall haul and depth and getting exactly what they needed to flank Blake Griffin moving forward, I mean, that's it is as solid, just rock solid and steady a group of four players as you can get given the circumstances and lack of leverage they had. How does this offense change now without Chris Paul? And I know one of the things Doc Rivers mentioned was ball movement, which people probably overblew it uh, because if you're not going to have one of the most ball-dominant point guards in the NBA on your roster, the ball is going to just have to move more, even when you have shot creators like Daniela Gallinari, like Blake Griffin. Uh, maybe poor word choice there, but I, I know you run through Blake, but like, how do you do this now? Because the, the when you look at the numbers, like they've been sort of on and off um, in terms of his on and off splits with and without Chris Paul over the past three years, where the offense hasn't always been good, but sometimes it's been great. Uh, where do you see, how do you see this offense operating now that you're removing Chris Paul from the fold and putting in a bunch of these different guys? I think what helps them the most is having their shooting guards and their depth there, both both Austin Rivers and Lou Williams, if we want to call them shooting guards, they're both guys that can handle the ball and initiate offense. Uh, Patrick Beverly has been maximized in his career in Houston because he doesn't have any playmaking duties whatsoever. And being able to have guards that can create off of the pick and roll is is really vital in today's NBA game. We, as coaches, a lot of us love ball movement we love player movement we love things that get everybody touches and everybody involved but at the the end of a shot clock or the end of the game you need some sort of a bread and butter and rivers and lou williams aren't terrible in that but in terms of their main motion and what they're going to be doing throughout the course of the game i think it's going to be a lot of high post touches for blake griffin uh, similar perhaps to the way that that the nuggets have been running things with with nikola Jokic at center there is, is they'll they'll put the ball at Blake's hands near the top of the key. They'll keep DeAndre Jordan somewhat low on the baseline, and they'll have three guys cutting and screening and moving around him. 
I would not be surprised at all to see a little bit of that type of offense and movement in surrounding Blake Griffin. Do the Clippers have enough off-ball shooting to kind of make that work? Uh, they have shooters, and Gallo's a good off-ball shooter, and Patrick Beverly's a good off-ball shooter. Mivos Teodosic is supposed to be a very good uh, spot-up shooter, but it seems like when you kind of play that way through a big, you either need to operate extremely fast, like the Nuggets do, or you need to have a this huge collection of dead-eye spot-up shooters, which I guess the Nuggets kind of have, but they, they just seem to operate so quickly, even when it's in the half court and they're not uh, necessarily uh, running end-to-end. And I don't know if, if the Clippers are built that way to prop up this type of style for an entire season. It helps that you have Blake Griffin, who is still a top-20 player when he's healthy and and on. And we saw that the Clippers' offense, I believe the on-off numbers, had them scoring like a top-three attack when it was him without Paul last year. So I get it. But to kind of see this in action... Um, when I, I don't necessarily know that you have enough guaranteed shooters and now you're taking would have been relatively small samples over the last six years and you're extrapolating them into one big season and asking Blake Griffin to carry your offense for that entire year. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the question of the season for the Clippers on offense. Uh, you look at their spacing with DeAndre Jordan as their center and he's kind of a, a zero-sum game, if you will. He can provide no spacing away from the basket. So when you have a guy like him at the center roaming the baseline and Blake Griffin near the top of the key with the ball in his hands, that leaves three players to space the floor to the corners and the wings as shooters. And I was wrestling with this this question and thinking about this for a long time the other day. And I looked up all their all these shooters' stats for catch and shoot on uh, the NBA stats dashboard and all their fancy player tracking thingamabobs and whatnot. And all guys that they have off the ball in their backcourt and on their wings are pretty solid. Uh, Austin Rivers was the one guy who worried me most, but he's above 40%. So I think they can provide that spacing. The issue and the biggest question then becomes, what exactly do the Clippers do when Blake Griffin isn't in the game? How do they create enough spacing because they're always going to be playing some sort of an immobile, non-skilled away from the basket center. How do they create enough driving lanes for someone else to be a creator? And to me, the only thing that they can do is stagger the minutes of Blake Griffin and Milos Teodosic. Those two have to play. The Clippers have to have at least one of them on the court at all times in order to get easy shots for the rest of their guys. I was interested to see if that guy could maybe be Austin Rivers because it seems like a role that he probably should be able to play at this point. But if if you look at uh, some of his numbers, last season specifically, uh, I looked this up before the podcast, the Clippers were just dreadful when he played without Blake Griffin um, and Chris Paul. I think they were about minus seven points per 100 possessions with what would have been a mediocre offense at best and, and a terrible terrible defense so I guess it has to be Milos Teodosic and and you're right you do have to stagger because it's not even we can sit here and talk about all the offensive questions we have and I think looking at their roster I agree wholeheartedly with you that they probably won't have trouble coming up with enough spacing at least not when Blake Griffin's on the floor and you can even look toward their numbers with him in the game without Paul last year to help but some of these combinations that you might need offensively are going to be atrocious on the other end 
of the floor. Yep. Uh, the potential starting lineup is kind of interesting. I'm assuming they'll roll with Beverly, Rivers, Gallo, Griffin, and Jordan. And you look at Beverly and Jordan, they're fine. Those are guys who might win you uh, your position battles on a nightly basis. Uh, Austin Rivers, I, I'm just a lot of people like Austin Rivers. I'm I'm just still not there. Um, mm-hmm. I could be talked into being indifferent with him defensively, but what the Gallo Blake Griffin combination at some point it becomes important to stagger their minutes, does it not? Because Gallo should play some four at least. He should probably be a full time four, but he sh- he has to play some four at the same time. You just gave Blake Griffin 170 plus million to be your four. And while the offensive ceiling on a Blake Griffin to Neil Gallinari 4-5 combination is ridiculous, I shudder to think about what the defensive numbers would be in those situations. Right. Uh, 100% accurate with, with that assessment on defense. I mean, that's that's what it comes down to is those two as the 4 and 5 probably cannot survive together defensively. And in the Western Conference, you you have to because there's enough talented small ball teams out there that can just throttle you if you're not good on the defensive end. So staggering their minutes is vital. Uh, I look at the, again, I don't think the position estimate stats or play-by-play information on basketball reference is the end-all be-all, but it gives you a rough idea of where these guys play relative to their teammates and who they might court. And last year, Gallinari spent 62% of his minutes in the power forward spot. 62. Now, I look at his backup that they acquired in this Chris Paul trade, and that's Sam Decker. And to me, Decker was most useful by playing that small ball four role last year a little bit for the Rockets. That might have been where where he had his biggest impact. B-ball reference had him down at 87% of his minutes came at the four last year. So, the Clippers are really rolling with a bigger lineup and a bigger rotation. And how they're able to defend the really mobile threes and fours of the world is is going to be strange. But in terms of staggering their minutes, yes, it, it is useful to maximize both Griffin and Gallo. But where does the relief come in on their second unit if it's Decker who's coming off the bench for Gallo and isn't that much more versatile defensively? Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know. I, I don't even. I don't even know what their best workable defensive combinations are. And even when you float the idea of yeah, it helps. I guess that Harold played five sometimes for Houston last year, but that mm-hmm. that doesn't help you out. Like I'm just like if you want to put Gallo at the four without Blake Griffin, maybe that's a lineup you try and use if you've already used DeAndre Jordan too much. But it's just so. Uh, it's it's like you said. Because Gallo has seems like he's been increasingly spending more time at the four. I didn't double check that. Um, to have him now all of a sudden be chained to the three full time almost. I don't know what percent of his minutes are going to come uh, at the four this year. It'd probably be lucky if it's a quarter of his playing time, I would think. I, I just don't, I don't know what you do. And the only thing I can really think of is you have to hope that maybe you can parlay some of this mishmash of players that you have um into a wing maybe a more expensive wing do you try and you know use Lou Williams's expiring contract with Wes Johnson's cheap deal and see if Atlanta's willing to sell really low uh, on Kent Bazemore at some point I I, I don't know but it, it seems like for them to make any sort 
of noise in the West this year, any any authentic noise anyway. They need another wing on the roster to kind of help offset the dilemma they now have with the Blake Griffin to Neil Gallinari defensive combination. Yeah, it's it's crazy to me because I remember in the first few years of the the Chris Paul Blake Griffin era in Los Angeles. I mean, there were six years of this. We had we had our fair share of watching those two try to compete out in the West. And the first few years, the biggest frustration was, can somebody get them help at the small forward position? Because there's there's just nobody that's here. And it was year after year. I mean, we had a year of Grant Hill. We tried we tried everybody at the small forward position, and they were all kind of below average three and D guys on on really small deals. Well, the first time somebody from the Clippers front office goes out and gets a marquee forward to fill that small forward spot, we look at the roster and we say. Well, who the hell are they going to defend? Like the, the the way that it, it works, it, it's it's not a great fit. Like talking about trade partners, like yeah, I think perhaps packaging Lou Williams and and Wes Johnson together with the expiring, maybe the Knicks try to give up on Courtney Lee and yeah. get out his, his deal a little bit and gain some cap relief because they have just so much wasted space on their roster. Like there are guys that are out there for the Clippers to target, and ultimately, I think they're going to have to if they're going to compete. But again, that doesn't solve the problem of their two front court guys and Gallo and Griffin and their main backup, Sam Decker, are all going to struggle to defend wings defensively. And and you don't solve that by adding one more wing to the equation necessarily. And you know what's interesting is that I don't know what made them look at their small forward problems and think, we really need a guy who's going to be a marquee forward uh scorer at that position excuse me yeah. you found Luke and Bob Moot was the best solution they found like, he was fantastic on defense last year and he he is good when he plays small ball four but you can survive with him um at the three too and he switches a lot of stuff there probably weren't better options than Danilo Gallinari for them to attain like they did through the sign and trade but it, it almost seems like if if you were worried about fit and you were worried about maximizing the potential of your roster for the next couple seasons around Blake Griffin that looking in to Luke and Bob Moot would have been uh, bringing him back would have been something you tried to do instead he ends up on the minimum in, in Houston maybe even going after an older guy like PJ Tucker before he signs in Houston I, I, or even Patrick Patterson might have ended up being good for this team but he plays the four so that's probably a bad example but I I don't know what made them think Looking at the roster they had, particularly after the Chris Paul trade and Doc Rivers and Jerry West and Steve Ballmer, whoever was making making these decisions would say, you know what, we need Danilo Gallinari and let's give up the first round pick we just got in the Chris Paul trade to get him. I mean, look, I love Gallinari. I think that he's he's an odd fit on this roster, but you can't tell me that you'd rather have with this roster and what they assembled post-Chris Paul trade, I have a really hard time believing that someone would rather have Daniil Gallinari than Jonathan Simmons and $8 million to spend. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's really hard for me to believe. Right, and it's, it seems like it's... Uh, this has been like a, a debate before within the basketball circles where it's, it's easier to be more valuable as a one-sided player when you're an offense-first player as opposed to a defense-first player, but it seems like it's easier 
to kind of offset your weaknesses or, or become closer to, uh, I guess, maskable in, in your most flawed areas if you're a defense-first guy and they just worry about getting you offense? Because that's essentially what the Clippers did for a lot of that Mbamut era is he was a good defender. He wasn't the best offensive player. And all of a sudden last year he pops off and shoots, you know, a career best from, from three-point range and it works out. And it seems like they would have done well again, especially looking at the rest of the roster, to target that type of, of a player. And you mentioned Jonathan Simmons would have been perfect. I know his price range pro- probably wasn't too clear that early in the process because he waited so long to sign. But that's something that it's not even saying that it's saving them money. There's a chance that it would have made them appreciably better to go with a cheaper player who's better on the defensive end. Yeah, and again, just kind of the the mysteries of the rest rest of the roster. Like, if you have a guy like Simmons in that position, and you still have a little bit of money to spend, don't know what you'd spend it on. But okay, you want to you want to put Simmons at the three? That's that's great. Give him a a two year deal. Maybe give him I don't know ten to twelve for what he's looking for. Third year is a team option, so you can get out of that if you'd like. And then you still have a little bit of money to play with to add one more maybe backup shooter if you need it. Like uh, To me, and I'm sure we'll get into this topic in a little bit more depth, but there's a reason Doc Rivers isn't running things anymore. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I, I love Doc. Uh, I grew up a Celtics fan, and, and watching him and, and those Celtics teams with the big three are some of the reasons why I became a coach is because Doc Rivers was so masterful with that. But in terms of creating a roster and filling it in with, you know, filling in the holes with the right guys that complement their stars, I just haven't really seen that from him. And that's made it really, really tough to believe that the Clippers are going to be able to pick up the torch and run with it in the post-CP3 era. And we, we talk about Doc, and as a basketball executive, I, I guess you can't always maybe you can't use the word terrible because they end up with JJ Redick when he's there. And you don't know if that happens. Um, if someone else is in his position, but as a coach now is where I don't like to call him overrated because I'm not sure who's saying he's a top five coach in the NBA right now. But we talked about the importance of staggering some of these guys minutes or just even the slight tweaks that'll help you manufacture just an, an extra trace of spin at the four for Gallinari is he a guy that's going to do that because he never seemed like he staggered the minutes um of his big three or of Blake Griffin and Chris Paul uh properly uh, for most of their tenure together I know injuries kind of threw him and the rest of the team for a whirl at points but is he a guy and we'll have to get into the basketball executive stuff but looking from a coaching standpoint is this a guy that you can trust to make the right systemic decisions or the, or the right makeup lineup decisions uh, for this roster moving forward yeah I, I i think so uh maybe i'm just still wearing my 2008 drunk goggles <laughs> a championship anything's possible that's right that's right but uh, last year was a very different year for the clippers you take a look at their they had just this unbelievable start to the season and everybody including myself was ready to anoint them a top contender, you know, perhaps even vaulting the Spurs out west to knock off the Warriors. And one of the reasons for that was because of the depth that they had and the players that were, you know, in their in their backcourt that were really ready to to step in and take minutes whenever their guys went to the bench. I mean, they went 
legitimately 10 deep. So they started Paul and Redick and Bob Mute and then, you know, Blake and Jordan up front. But off the bench, they brought in Rivers and Crawford and Felton. And Mo Spates was a very good small ball center that stretched out the full Crawford. The issue is the lack of spacing on that second unit. You know, Mo Spates isn't there. And instead, they have Willie Reed and Montrez Harrell, who are very similar to DeAndre Jordan and suck in a lot of defenders towards the rim. So how do the how do the Clippers, how does Doc manufacture those driving lanes and, and scoring lanes with that second unit? Uh, again, maybe I'm, I'm just too much of a, a Celtics homer right here, but I go back to that 08 team with how he managed the rotations. I mean, he very rarely played Nate Robinson on the floor in, was that 2010, 2008, whatever year that was. He very rarely played Nate Robinson without Tony Allen there to flank him. I mean, he's going to do things to give the Clippers the best offense-defense balance that he can find because you can't sacrifice one in order to gain proficiency at the other. So my trust does lie in Doc, the coach, to try to figure out the best solution that's there. The issue may be Doc, the GM, could have created too poor of a best solution answer for the Clippers to be able to really win games with. It, it's just so it's fascinating because they seem deeper than they've seemed during that big three era for the most part. And their bench, I feel like, and I, I was looking at numbers and now I don't know if I'm misremembering, but I feel like their bench was really good for part of the year, but it really started to falter um, toward the end. And that's why I just thought there needed to be more staggering at some point, but I, I guess here's the interesting question now then is we can assume that Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan are going to get a lot of their rest periods together. Mm-hmm. Um, what is what is your favorite lineup or what's the lineup you want to lean on most when neither of those two guys are on the floor? Uh, for me, it's uh, I, I like both Willie Reed and Montrez Harrell. I, pick your poison there at the five. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if Willie Reed doesn't make it uh, – you know, with into a Clippers uniform at all, given the circumstances that are going on with him. Off yeah, the, I would not we'll, be surprised either. Yeah, so we'll we'll leave that one alone. But uh, let's I say I like Harrell as a small ball five too. I find that very interesting. Yeah, I do too. So I would I would put I would put Harrell at the five, uh, Gallinari at the four, and then just based on the way that I I look at their roster right now, like geez, we're we're out of guys. Uh, Decker at the three, Lou Will at the two, and. Teodosic at the one. Do you think, uh, and this could be a Wes Johnson type situation because whenever, when they signed him to his new contract or even when he was first there, it was always, oh, he's the guy, just that perimeter defender. It doesn't matter if he's going to give us any scoring and he hasn't really been that good. Uh, and I say that good, he's been pretty bad or at least he couldn't see the floor, it seemed like last year. Is there a chance that DeAndre Liggins becomes more important to this roster than we realize right now. Yeah, I really like Liggins, and, and I like Thornwell, too. They're rookie out of South Carolina. I think for his size, he's like 6'6". He can handle the ball like a point guard, makes really good decisions with it, defends, slashes. I mean, he's a very good player for them to bring off of that bench. So those two guys, I wouldn't be surprised if they carve out roles. But it's also a little bit as much about necessity as it is about their overpassing a guy like Wes Johnson or or even Montrez Harrell in terms of, of skill or need to play this guy. 
Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. I mean, last year, one of the things that I liked about the Clippers second unit was that they had spates at the five and then they could switch one through four with Felton rivers, Crawford and West Johnson. When their second unit was at its peak, that's what they were doing defensively. So if they don't stagger Gallo and Griffin's minutes and they put Willie Reed or Montrez Harrell at the five, and then they play Decker and West Johnson or one of those two guys at the four, and then a guy like Liggins or Thornwell, and they try to go with that same strategy, switch everything and have a, a less mobile post behind to clog up the paint, I wouldn't be shocked, and I think it might work. And you know what's funny is we talk about, it seems like they just they just have so many options here, and I'm not necessarily sure what, there's a clear direction, but I'm just not necessarily sure what this team's identity um, should be outside of the offensive end or necessarily outside Griffin. And then you kind of look at the front office and there seems like there are all these different cooks in the kitchen now because you have Doc Rivers and you have Horns Frank and you have to assume Jerry West carries some cachet around that organization. Uh, Steve Ballmer, I'm sure, is involved. I find that to be a, a very interesting dynamic as well. And while Woj uh, over at ESPN had said that he didn't believe or that people sources don't believe that Rivers's demotion in essence uh, portends him leaving anytime soon do you view it as anything more profound than just oh we need to make Doc's life easier uh yeah I, I definitely do I just I just don't agree with with all of the the decisions that the doc the GM has made. Sorry, I was just thinking for a minute. You said Woj at ESPN, and my mind still went crazy because I can't believe he's there. It's still so uh, weird seeing it, him on the television and stuff. There are his byline at ESPN.com. It's still it's so bizarre. It it rubs me. Uh, it, it's just it. I don't know. I get chills whenever I see. I, I still have Woj notifications on, and it pops up, and then I click on it. It's got the NBA on ESPN logo, and my mind just goes nuts. But anyway. Back to Doc, uh, yeah, he just he didn't succeed enough, and I think that there's more to it than just trying to make his life easier. Uh, that said, it is a very real byproduct of it, right? And when you have the chance to add a former executive of the year and a great basketball mind like Jerry West into the fold, you have to do it. Uh, Doc Rivers' appeal as a general manager at the beginning of his tenure there was his ability and his rapport to recruit veteran players. I think that what they wanted around a younger Blake, as still in his prime Chris Paul, and a younger DeAndre Jordan, was somebody who's going to be able to get guys like J.J. Redick uh, and get other players to come in and say, we want to help elevate this and be the, the pieces that maybe take a pay cut to come here and help build this team into a championship contender. Uh but that never worked out for the Clippers, and when you have the chance to add Jerry West, especially coming into, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, a huge 2018 summer and for next year when everybody in Los Angeles is going to be recruiting from the rest of the league, you can't turn down the opportunity to, to make Jerry West kind of the, the guy that's overseeing everything. So whether whether it's, it's West is calling the shots or Lawrence Frank is calling the shots, it doesn't matter. The image that they want and need to portray is that Jerry West is the guy that's going to be leading the charge here and is kind of the brain power behind the organization. 
Lawrence Frank is going to run the day-to-day, but has such a close relationship with Doc Rivers and what goes on on the court that there's complete harmony in the organization, and that's what they're going to try to sell to their free agents next summer. Their cap space situation next summer is going to be incredibly interesting because there's DeAndre Jordan has a player option, and the assumption with him and a lot of these other guys when they signed their deals in 2015 or 2016 was that they would opt out the first chance they get, but a lot of people, including myself, just misread the market last summer. And uh, Tim McMahon and Bobby Marks, also now ESPN.com, published a fantastic piece a week or two ago about how a lot of people around the league believe these free agents are going to get squeezed and they're not going to make as much money um, in 2018 because the market will still be correcting itself uh, from 2016. And it kind of begs the question is, one, do you see DeAndre Jordan opting out still? I, I kind of still do. And then two, do you re-sign him? Um, he's he's basically the NBA's Iron Man, and he's what someone like Drummond or Hassan Whiteside should aspire to be on defense because it seems like he's kind of a sneaky good switcher for someone his size. Uh, but just with the way the direction of the league is headed, with how much money you have tied up in Blake Griffin and and Danilo Gallinari, I find his free agency, and then maybe they want to go out and try and recruit guys and create extra cap space to get these kind of switchable wings who can guard across three, four positions, which is something that Jordan really can't do. Uh, I'm I'm so intrigued to see what's going to happen with him. I don't think it'll get to a point where some initially thought he would enter the trade market when Chris Paul first left, but seeing how the Clippers kind of rebounded and responded with a roster that's built to win now I don't think that happens but his future with the team I would still guess even with kind of a less than enthusiastic market for centers around the association is still up in the air so just pulled I pulled up my spreadsheets to try to take a look at their you know cap situation and whatnot moving forward and next year there are only three players guaranteed guaranteed to be under contract for the Clippers at the end of this coming season. Blake Griffin, Daniil Gallinari, and an unbelievable $5.0 million from Pat Beverly. Everyone else has a player option, a team option, or will be a free agent. Everybody else. So there's a lot of flexibility and maneuverability. I think before we can even dive into the DeAndre Jordan conversation – we have to think about, okay, who is it that they would try to go after if they didn't have Jordan? Because if they see somebody, they smell blood in the water that they really want on that free agent market next summer, that they think they have a realistic chance for, I would not be surprised if they trade Jordan by the trade deadline this year. That's interesting to me, but it's just, I mean, I, their guaranteed commitments are weird, but to me, there's I would be genuinely surprised unless there's something going on again where Doc Rivers is going to overpay his son. Uh, I would be a, a little bit shocked to see Austin opt out of his contract. Uh, Milos Teodosic, I, I would be a little bit surprised if he opted out as well. There's, there's no way Wes Johnson opts out because I don't even know if he would be on an NBA roster if yep. he opts out by that point. So I don't think they're going to be as flexible as their uh, guaranteed deals suggest and I also what center you can replace maybe you could replace 
I don't want to use the term lion's share of what DeAndre Jordan does, but you could, if Dwayne Dedman decides to re-enter the free agent market, I think he has a player option. You can probably get by with someone who's noticeably cheaper than DeAndre Jordan, but now when you're kind of looking at your defense at the forward spots, having that tried and true, high-volume, healthy, established fulcrum uh, is incredibly important, and that, that's why it's just so fascinating to me. But then you look um, at the other teams, and you dive into their depth charts, and you consider those that are going to have cap space, and you're kind of like, well, who the heck is going to need a center that wants to make well into the eight figures? And you can't necessarily come up with anyone just because right. th- there isn't right now. And, and on the same token as well, I mean, guys opt out of contracts all the time just to take more money from their current team. And that may be something that DeAndre does as well. So just because he opts out doesn't mean that there's going to be a strong suitor's market for him, but it could mean that he's just looking to re-up for a longer deal with the Clippers. And and I certainly understand that. Um, you know, I, I like your point about Deadman. He's a pretty good replacement as term as far as, you know, younger uh, role player guys go. He can fill that DeAndre Jordan spot okay. But I talk a lot about bookends on the court, the one and the five positions where you defend a lot of pick and rolls, you're involved in a lot of pick and rolls, and that's really where your your bread and butter versatility comes in is being able to, to have guys that can, can not just fill one role. And I, I really would worry about the Clippers having two – I want to call them glorified role players in Deadman and Patrick Beverly running the one and the five there because you're just you're so pigeonholed into how much flexibility you have with the rest of your roster. Um, so while I while I say I can envision a scenario in which the Clippers would trade Jordan by the trade deadline, that's only if they feel they have a legitimate shot with one of these free agents they fall in love with, and I don't think that will happen. So I, I think Jordan probably whether he opts in or opts out he's going to be a clipper for the next few seasons um it's it's still a really fascinating off season to try to look at though because as we've been talking about this whole podcast they need help elsewhere on their roster and where do they really create that flexibility if they have guys like austin rivers teodosic wesley johnson deandre jordan all opting in or taking more money to stay i mean where do you get those upgrades from you don't um, and <laughs> you, you know what actually might be a good barometer for the DJ situation? Nerlens Noel, who's clearly an inferior player at this point, but from a standpoint of we know there's not a robust market for Noel right now, but the Dallas Mavericks are presumably still willing to pay him a long-term deal. If It's kind of going to be a similar situation, I would think, with DeAndre were he to opt out. It's kind of known, yes, you're valuable, but at the same time, there aren't going to be a ton of teams around the league ready to offer you all this money. So if Noel is able to get close to market value uh, or a deal over the long term that guarantees him a lot of money and DJ can look at it as kind of, well, you know, I don't need to make uh, 20 plus million dollars in one year and go for that short term windfall because I can still get um, a four year, maybe it's a four year, $70 million deal or even a $60 million deal just to guarantee long term money. That might be, Uh, a good gauge with what Noel gets in terms of length or his decision. Maybe he even decides, I want to go super short-term because players and agents think that the market is going to be aggressive again in 2019. Uh, So that might factor into it, and probably not directly, but I think just looking at 
what happens when you're a quality big man with, without uh, an aggressive free agent market. Yeah. And, and we're talking about guys kind of locking up and trying to get that security for another big pay contract, but it's not like any of these guys are at the end of their their earning sprees in the NBA. I mean, do you know who the oldest player is on the Clippers roster right now? No, that's a good question. It, it's There are three 30-year-olds. They have nobody who's 31 years old right now. Wes Johnson, Lou Williams, and Teodosic are the three guys who are in their 30s. That is that, and that's such a bizarre combination to have as your, you know, eldest veterans, so to speak. Well, and, and beyond that, I mean, it. Fe- Blake Griffin and Jordan have been here together for a decade, and Gallo. Andre Jordan's a freak. I just, how many games does he miss in his career? It's less than twenty. I think it's sixteen yeah. or something crazy. And and Gallo, it's. I mean, he's been in. He had a career with the Knicks, and then they traded into the Nuggets, and he seems like he was there for almost a decade. And, I mean, these guys – Lou Williams came in, into the league when he was young. He's over a 10-year veteran. He's barely 30 years old. I mean, there's experience on this team, but they're not old. So it's not like a lot of these guys are going to go away and say, oh, they're starting to hit that decline. So, you know, we can – either get them on cheaper vet like veteran deals or we'll just move on and get somebody younger like it they're not old and they're not on that depreciation slope quite yet yes and to correct myself before you started speaking dj has missed eight games since 2010 2011 i forgot that he barely played when he first um came into the league so i guess with all this being said where do you see the clippers relative to the west how many wins do you think they're gonna end up with i saw uh, Kevin Pelton did his fantastic RPM projections at ESPN.com, had them hovering around 48-49. Uh, that feels high to me for some reason, but where do you have them in terms of wins, and where could you see them, I guess? Let's let's do an optimistic and pessimistic finish prediction. Where could you see them going as high in the Western Conference standings, and is there a scenario where you could see them falling lower than people expect? Okay, so for me, the optimistic approach the most optimistic approach would be that 48 win scenario. They're kind of the four or the five seed once again, slotted in there. Um, and that goes with a year of health where everybody stays healthy. <laughs> where Teodosic plays the way that a lot of the, the great Euro fans expect and anticipate him to play when he comes over to the NBA and they get, lights out performances and a big step forward from Austin Rivers this year because he's he's going to be thrust into a really important role especially defensively and they they need him to step up so if he does that I think 48 49 wins you know they're kind of in that four five slot where they're they're behind teams like Oklahoma City Golden State Houston uh you know right around there with with Oklahoma City San Antonio kind of wrestling for those those three four five spots um pessimistic approach for me is they're in kind of this just complete mesh of teams that are around 500 and all struggling to separate themselves into that seven through 11 uh i I don't even know what to call it out west there's just there's a ton of teams that are going to be kind of good they have their their flaws to them um 
but I, th- I think the Clippers probably their their worst case scenario is is a forty win team, and and the reason I say that is because I don't think one injury necessarily cripples them this year, right? If Blake Griffin goes down, sure they're they're weaker in their depth elsewhere, but maybe we get more Gallinari at the four, and a lot of small ball, and they just ramp up their attack. That would be something to to see them play without Griffin for. I don't want him to get injured, by the way. But right. To end up seeing them have to play without Griffin again, and they're just we're back to that same Chris Paul conversation where it's like, oh my god, are they better without Blake Griffin? That would be after a five year, one seventy plus million dollar deal. That would be something else. I know, and I and I love Blake. Right? I I think he's one of the the most underrated guys in the league right now. I wrote about him my first piece for NBA Math. Was was how much I love Blake Griffin and his passing ability, but so good. I, I just I don't I don't think that their season collapses without him. Um, so I would put them as worst case scenario forty wins. We'll say forty, and they are the tenth seed that are just just on the outside looking in, falling behind the likes of you know a, a team like Denver, uh, Minnesota, Utah. New Orleans, who a bunch of these guys are are trying to figure out who they are as some of them are coming up, some of them are coming down, and where do you really slot them in comparison to each other? Yeah, the West is the West is a blood that there are there are probably twelve teams that can talk themselves into chasing for a playoff berth. The Mavs say they're rebuilding, so we can go with eleven teams, maybe but the Kings after getting George Hill and Zebo and Carter might actually think they're good. I don't think they do. But there, there are at least 11 teams who are going to talk themselves into a playoff berth, and that may ultimately be kind of what screws the Clippers, especially because I think you look at j- just the teams that missed the playoffs last year, we kind of almost have to pencil in the Timberwolves and the Nuggets for a playoff berth this year is what I think makes things so uh, tough to project. And, and who among the eight teams that made it last year uh, besides the Clippers would would fall off. I think the Blazers and the Grizzlies are two teams that we can immediately go to, but it's just looking at that cluster. It's, it's so hard to project. So I think they're going to get around 43 wins. And I think that might be good enough to get them the seven or the eight seed. I I don't know if it's going to be on the one hand, it's like, is this going to be a season where the eight seed needs to have 50 wins? But on the other hand, it's like, well, you have 11, 12 teams who could really compete with each other that they might just take away uh, wins from each other. So I think 43 and they're, I don't want to use the word best case scenario, but it seems most likely to me would be 43, 44 and you get in as the, the seven, eight. So do you kind of have like your own sweet spot for them? Yeah, it, I think that's, that's a right, right around where mine would be. I mean, there are three locks to me for the postseason. three absolute, or I shouldn't say there's more than three locks, but the three biggest locks are the Warriors, Rockets and Spurs, right? Like I have, I have just the hardest time. They were the three best teams in the West last year. A really hard time imagining that they're not going to return to that level. Okay, there's five more playoff spots left. Would you take the Clippers over any team in the Northwest Division? The Nuggets, Timberwolves, Thunder, Blazers, or Jazz? I would take them over the Blazers. I think if we're if we're assuming health, I don't want to discredit you know CJ McCollum and Damian Lillard, but Portland's offseason, you know, you shed Alan Krebs' contract, but he was one of the best spot up shooters in the league, and you now have this front court log jam where I don't necessarily know you'll I guess you'll always have enough scoring and shooting with CJ and Dame uh, and they were great with Nurkic yeah that was that was that was was that 20 game sample size or whatever but yeah that he was 
he was really good there, but maybe the Blazers, but I don't think you can look at, to your point, and say the Clippers are better than X out of that division. Right, so there's there's coming up teams, like you mentioned, Denver and Minnesota, like we want to pencil them in a little bit. New Orleans, like who knows what's going on there because they have such a, a even more you know crazy... They might be the strangest team. We were talking about the Clippers, but yeah. you could you look at the Pelicans. I think I could talk myself into like, well, you know, they have Demarcus and Anthony Davis. Or Rondo keeps shooting the way he's been shooting. That they could get fifty plus, but then it's like, yeah, they might get thirty seven. <laughs> right, right. There's they have a wider window than a team like the Clippers, which might make them stranger. But it's also a lot more apparent, kind of who what they're going to try, just move the ball with their two point guards around two big men that are, are really skilled and will will be able to play with each other. But, I mean, if we want to pencil those three teams, Denver, Minnesota, and New Orleans in, okay, now we've got six, and then Oklahoma City, a very talented team, makes seven. I mean, there's one playoff spot left for Portland, Utah, Memphis. God, it's just it's really hard for, for me to be anything more than tepid on the Clippers because, like you said, it's just it's a bloodbath out there. And – you know they they have some some questions and some issues on the defensive end that you know I, I look at a lot of these teams and there there's questions for every single one of them but i have a lot easier time believing that the fix is on their current roster than i do on this clippers team so to to i guess round it up playoffs or not for the clippers next year i'm going to say 8 seed i'm going to say 8 seed i like it i'm with you um, so that was our 2017-2018 Clippers preview. They are going to be an extremely fun, if strange, if frustrating, if beautiful, if terrible team to watch next season. Um, if you want to talk to Adam Moore about this on Twitter and get at him for his hot takes, uh, his handle is at Spinella14, that's S-P-I-N. E-L-L-A-14. Again, he writes over at NBA Math. He does stuff for B-Ball Breakdown. And he is an assistant men's basketball coach over at Washington and, and Jefferson. So it was a blast having you on, Adam. I hope you enjoyed it. I, I think everyone learned a lot about the uh, Clippers. And um, if listeners want to get at me, they can find me on Twitter at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. They can follow NBA Math at NBA underscore math. And they can also get at Hardwood Knox on Twitter as well. Or even Andy Bailey, who abandoned you today as well. He is at Andrew D. Bailey. I will not be doing the usual shout out to Bino Udre because I still think that that's a ridiculous implementation that Andy subscribes to. So until next time. Skydiving. This is amazing. Yeah, but you know what else is amazing? An iPhone 6S for just 49 bucks at Metro. Really? Imagine streaming all the way down with that amazing camera. I'm switching. That's smart. You know what else is smart? Parachutes. Woo! Switch to Metro and get an amazing iPhone 6S for only 49 bucks. Metro by T-Mobile. Phone offer requires port in of number not currently active on T-Mobile Network or active on Metro in past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. Skydiving. This is amazing. Yeah, but you know what else is amazing? An iPhone 6S for just 49 bucks at Metro. Really? Imagine streaming all the way down with that amazing camera. I'm switching. That's smart. You know what else is smart? Parachutes. Woo! 
Switch to Metro and get an amazing iPhone 6S for only 49 bucks. Metro by T-Mobile. Phone offer requires porting of number not currently active on T-Mobile network or active on Metro in past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions.